Hello, hello, my name is Michael and I welcome you to What's Your Career, where careers are examined one at a time. Today, I welcome Amanda Heinemann, a successful interior designer. I find her career super interesting and I'm excited to share that with you. Amanda digs into the details of what it's like to work on project after project. She explains the steps of executing a project, as well as the importance of clear communication, good relationships, and good team members. If you are a consultant or provide a service in any way, Amanda's experience will illustrate how you can improve your skills. Now, let's hear the interview. Amanda, welcome to the podcast. It's so good to have you here. Thanks, Michael. Glad to be here. So tell everyone about yourself. Who are you? Uh, what do you do? And tell us a little bit about your life. Sure. Um, so uh, my name is Amanda Heinemann. Uh, I'm an interior designer and I live in Houston, Texas. I've been practicing interior design for, I guess, about six years now. And um, I've pretty much been in Houston the entire time since I graduated. And I went to UT um, and I studied at um, the School of Architecture in the interior design program there. Okay, awesome. And so I imagine that straight after school, you got this job or how did that transition work? Uh, so I actually um, just started a new job kind of uh, during the pandemic. So I just, the job I'm currently in right now, I started in November. And then right after school though, I started at a, a big company um, doing architecture and design, interior design work. Um, and I, I worked there for about five years before I changed jobs. Oh, okay. Perfect. Um, and so your current position, I want to ask two questions on, on this position. And the first one is how would you rate your job function? Like what you actually do from one to 10, one being terrible and 10 being just the dream position. I think it's really hard. It depends on the the task that I'm working on. Um, I would say like it definitely fluctuates in between one and 10. Um, but I would say it probably like averages out to like a seven. Okay. That's pretty good. So you, you like your job. It's Love average. Yeah. It's a great job, but you know, things could be a little bit better, I guess. What sure. What might make it a little bit better? What would be the dream job? Oh, I think that's so hard. I I think the dream job is probably slightly unrealistic um, because since interior design is a service, it's in the service industry. Um, I think it would require like a perfect client, which is near impossible. Like I've had mm. a few really wonderful clients that I've worked with, but they're definitely like a few and far between. Um, so I think a really, really, really good client who's really open and wants to try new things. And then also a really good team because a lot of people yeah. don't realize that um, for interior design, especially commercial interior design, which is what I do, um, it doesn't, it's not just one person. It's an entire team who really like um, comes up with the idea and then executes it to make it into the space that, you know, people recognize and engage with. Okay. Interesting. But it is still in the design space. That's your dream job is in the, so you're, you're in your dream job. It's just, maybe your clients and the exact position you're in doesn't allow it to be a 10 out of 10, but the actual work you do as a designer is, is the dream. It's interesting. I, I guess 
you know, I think I could be in a dream job in multiple um, scenarios. Like, I think, yes, like if those added up, it would be a dream job for me. But I also think that those could translate into other areas because I think my dream job is probably a combination of good design, good communication and good people and like bringing those all together. And um, right. maybe like a teaching component as well, because I really do like that. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Okay, so I'm going to change the question a little bit. And how would you rate your job happiness? How happy are you, uh, you know, taking into account all the corporate hoo-ha that you have mm -hmm. to deal with and the, the clients that are angry? I mean, how happy are you doing your work day in and day out? Yeah, again, I feel like that fluctuates project to project. And also, like, depending on which phase of the project you're in, some phases are easier and more exciting than other phases. Like, Definitely, um, everyone's a lot more excited at the beginning of a project and really stressed out like towards the end. And then generally, if it goes well, <laughs> then they're really happy after. So right. um, I would say that fluctuates a lot too. So I would say that probably averages out like a little bit lower, like maybe like a six to seven. Um, okay. Yeah. Okay, great. And so, all right, let's back it up a little bit and let's get the full picture of, of what your career has looked like. And let's take it all the way back to maybe high school. Did you know you wanted to go into design in high school or was that a decision you made in college? So I feel like I'm a little bit um, atypical in this because um, I always knew I wanted to be uh an interior, well, I don't know if it was interior designer, but I knew I wanted to be an architect, an inventor, or like some kind of designer um, since I was in fourth grade. So I feel like that's a little bit strange, but also my dad has an architectural background. And so I was just around that a lot. Um, and I feel like I always really enjoyed building things. And so um, that's kind of always been a fascination and a hobby from when I was a really little kid. And then in, um, High school, I knew I wanted to do something design related. And I think I really kind of honed in on architecture and interior design. Backing up a little bit before I went to college, my last years of high school, I kind of tried out architecture. Um, and I went to UT Summer Academy, um, which is just like a program about two months over the summer. And it kind of mimics like the first year of architecture school. So it's a lot of abstract thinking. It's a lot of kind of diagramming and creating like spaces that are designed around uh, different like programs. So that's like an architecture term for like what is happening in the space, like what the action is. Okay. And so um, that kind of gave me an idea about what architecture was like. And I think it scared me a little bit. And so I was like, oh, I'll just do interiors. It's very close to architecture, but it has a little bit more of um, – kind of like the soft things that people engage with more. Um, like people are inside buildings more so than they're outside buildings. And I think you kind of get into the more intimate details that really kind of make or break someone's experience within a space. And so that's kind of where I chose interiors. So when I applied to go to UT, I already knew um, that I, to put interior design down as my major. Sounds like you, you know, we're able to choose that path and, and just run with it. And that's awesome that you were able to make that, that connection. You were able to figure out what you wanted and just go with it from a very young age, from very early on in your college days. So well done. Yeah. I feel like maybe I got lucky in that sense, but also I do think 
there are multiple jobs in which people can enjoy and be really good at. And I do think that there were other things that I probably could have done and, and gotten the same amount of um, gratification out of it. But I think I always lean towards things that were more um, kind of in like the creative realm because I was so art focused as a kid. And so I just always kind of wanted to do something in that, in that like field. Um, but I also think a lot of people are creative and they just express it in different ways where they don't see themselves as like conventionally creative and that kind of rules them out of certain fields. Um, not to say like they should pursue those certain fields if they're not like, you know, really passionate about it. Cause I do think architecture and interior design is a passion profession and there are pros and cons to that. Um, you know, one of the pros is you might be getting to do something that you really enjoy and that you would do for free just because you love it. But then the con to that is you undervalue yourself and then you get taken advantage of. And I feel like the profession as a whole really struggles with that because yeah. everyone's kind of um, trying to, to win projects and win bids and everyone kind of lowballs each other and then thus lowballing themselves. And then it's really hard for the industry to actually kind of charge an amount that um, would cover all the work that's being done on those projects. Yeah, that's a very real scenario, uh, especially for for people like stay-at-home mothers that start a little side business selling cakes or, or you know, working on, you know, cutting people's hair. They often start it as a service and they just help out their friends or they make their, you know, friends their their kids friends birthday cake for free but then they have a really hard time actually turning it into a business because they're so used to undervaluing their time and their effort and their materials that it, it becomes a real challenge to to market and to charge what 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 you should charge and i could see that being very similar to what you're explaining in the design and architecture space where you love it so much and you would, you would do it for free. And because of that, you, you kind of do, <laughs> you don't yeah, charge, yeah. but you should charge. And right. And I, to be clear, I wouldn't do it all for free. There are certain parts where I'm like, this is really fun. And I would do this for myself. And so, so it's just, it's more of like, um, you know, it is something that you enjoy. And sometimes when you are enjoying it, you feel guilty actually charging money for your time. And before you know it, you've put in so much time to it. And so obviously it is incredibly valuable. And also, um, you know, with commercial design, you're designing a space generally that is filled with occupants who are paying customers or who, you know, you're, you're, you're creating a business for someone, right? And so they're profiting from your design. So it is valuable. And so there's 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 plenty of ways to kind of validate um, that inherent value, even if it's not like a for-profit business. If it's a hospital, you're like creating something that is functional where people are staying for like long periods of time. And, you know, that design is affecting their well-being while they're like sitting in the waiting room, you know, even something just as minor as like the colors or the chair that they're sitting in, like if it's in a comfortable chair, you know, yeah, they might yeah. not really notice. It might not affect their experience that much. But if it was comfortable, it would definitely make like the hmm. unpleasant experience of going to the doctor like a little bit nicer. So there's all those little things where I mean, I think this is always really hard. But like, how do you value a really good experience? And I think the tech industry is doing that really well. You know, Apple's all about simplicity and, and making things like an intuitive, seamless experience. And 
I think design, especially interior design, really aims to do that. Um, but I think it's really hard to put a price tag on those experiences. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think that's like one of the trickiest things about it. Well, that's very interesting, and I I would not have guessed that, but it does make a lot of sense now that you say it. So let me let me take this conversation back a little bit, and kind of the goal of of each of these conversations that I have with people is to to open up the listener to other possibilities and other careers, and I want people to know what people do for 40 hours a week or 50 hours a week and what actually occupies their time. So you've kind of described uh, the role of, of an interior designer, of an architect, um, you know, where you find clients and you, you, you provide a service to them. You're a service industry. Um, you, you listen to what they need and you, you do it, you make it happen. But, but go into a little more detail about that. What do you actually do? What consumes your time um, you know, what's the good, the bad, and the ugly of, of what you do day in and day out? Sure. Okay. So since every project's a little bit different, obviously this is going to change, um, a tiny bit based on like the project typology, but for the most part, all projects kind of follow the same uh, phases. And so there's typically like four to five formal phases of design. Um, the first phase, and sometimes this is looped in with uh, the second phase, but you know, if, there, if it's a true, I guess, project start, then the first phase would be kind of conceptualizing it. And so sometimes that would start with um, like a visioning session with the client. So we would have them come in, um, have them talk about kind of what they want their space to be like, if they have something like it, um, and they're, you know, wanting to create something new to improve upon it. What does their current space do? What do they like? What do they dislike? which spaces do they really admire? Like, is there a brand that they want um, to be more like? Is it more of a design-oriented space? Is it more of a service-oriented space? Um, what kind of amenities or what kind of um, experiences are people going to have within the space? Okay. Um, we ask a lot of questions. So it's really kind of like information sourcing at the very beginning. Yep. And then yep. with that information, um, we kind of create like a concept. So the concept would be kind of an overarching big idea that kind of um, shows how all of those different functions loop into the space, but also um, it touches on like what the aesthetic will be like and why, like, and how that all ties together. Um, so it's really fun when it's for like an entrepreneurial business um, because generally you get to be very brand focused um, and that's really nice. I mean, I guess any project has a brand these days, um, but it's really nice because uh, when they have a strong brand, you can really like incorporate it into the, into the interiors um, and it makes it like very cohesive. Huh. So oh, I, I've got a lot of questions running through my head on, on what you're saying right now. So are your clients... Tell me about your clients a little bit. You know, I guess before you continue on with these phases, these stages mm -hmm. of work, what types of clients are, are these large scale, multi-month, year long projects? Or are most of them just, you know, you work on this for a month and you get the yeah. design down and it's done. And is it mom and pop shops or is it big, large, you know, hotels or something? Or who are your clients? 
It's kind of uh, a mix of everyone. So I, I've had a little bit of a unique experience here and it's, it's been harder because every single project has been so different, but it's also been really great because now I have a very well-rounded kind of perspective about um, what each of these projects is like, which is really fun. And it keeps things really interesting. Um, but uh, I've worked with multifamily clients. So generally like high rises or mid rise apartments. Um, so two of those were pretty luxury high rise apartments, like around 40 floors. And then one of them was uh, more student housing and that was a mid rise. So a little bit different of a demographic, a little bit different aesthetic. Yep. And then the other one was kind of in between. It was like young professionals. And so that was fun because that was kind of catering to like a demographic similar to myself. Um, and they've been in all different locations. So one was in California, um, one was in Florida, uh, and then one's been in Austin and one's been in Houston. So okay. like a lot of variety in that. Um, and then I've also worked on uh, a five-star hotel. I think Houston, yeah, Houston's only five-star hotel. Um, and that was a boutique hotel though. So in boutique in like a large scale way, like about 300 rooms. Um, so that was a pretty interesting project because everything was custom. Uh, it was in Houston. So I got to see it. Um, and I was also on site for the last nine months. So that was really exciting because I actually got to see a lot of the design that I had done earlier get installed. And I also got to see how things got put together, which was really exciting. Um, so are, are you, do people like do restaurant owners maybe hire you guys or, or are you too expensive for just a small little restaurant or it sounds like what you're describing are pretty big projects, large sure. buildings and whatnot. Do, do small one-off restaurants or stores or something use, use oh, yeah, design consultants on definitely. a regular basis? Definitely. Um, yeah. So I worked, I'm working on a restaurant right now, actually um, also in Houston. And that one is, I think, it depends, I think, on the level of establishment each restaurant has. Like, I think people are a little bit more apprehensive when it's their first restaurant to use a designer because it is it is quite expensive sometimes. But it does alleviate a lot of the stress of opening a business because all the coordination is taken care of and um, things will turn out a certain way. Um, but, yeah, I would say uh, small projects are actually the most fun. Uh, I really how, enjoy how quickly projects. can you how quickly can you get through one of those small projects and about what does it cost the client? Uh, cost is totally um, dependent on what the project is, where it is, and how much the client wants to spend. We always will try to work within the client budget, and for the most part, it's generally very close. It's just everyone always has more expensive taste than they're willing to pay for. And so sometimes, you know, they just have to see the way something prices out to know that they can't afford it, but they want to see what it costs first. Um, and I would say the timeframes for a small project uh, are probably still about a year. Like if it's under a year, it's very, very fast. Okay. Um, because, you know, you have to, you have to actually build all of the stuff and the contractor has to source the materials. So a lot of it depends on lead times. We always try to find projects products that are really fast lead times if the project is like accelerated um, yeah. and then some of the longer projects like the multifamily ones the multi-story ones um, and the hotel those I mean those can be um, I would say like 
four to seven years, maybe longer if it goes on hold. It takes wow. a really long time. Um, and there's so many things that happen before the interior designer even comes on. Um, oh, yeah. You know, yep. The site is purchased and the architecture-based building is established. And then the interior designer and the architect start working together. So there's there's definitely like a lot of moving parts. So, uh, yeah, I still have a lot of questions. This is very interesting. And thanks for sharing this. Um, so do you... I guess phase one for you guys is just asking a lot of questions, right? And then phase two, or were they phases or stages? Oh, or yes, different phases, yeah. Phases. So, so phase two was to start getting a theme going. Is that right? So that's, sorry, conceptual is all in the first. So the sourcing of questions okay. and then kind of your initial, I would almost say it's like a project statement. That's what your concept is, right? So it's, it's, it's pretty much just like a narrative of, what you what you think you want the space to look like and how it ties in with like the end goal. So it's it's very loose, super, super big picture, high level. Okay. Um, and then you move into schematic design, which is where things start to get really real. Yep. Um, and so that kind of looks more at floor plans. So like people are used to seeing traditional blue architectural blueprints and stuff like that. Um, but it really starts with bubble diagramming. So you take the spaces from the visioning session that the client has said that they want. So if it's um, like a restaurant space, you kind of always have like the entry vestibule where the hostess stand is, maybe like a small waiting area. Then you have um, your dining area, which could be broken up into different groups. Generally there's different kinds of seating, you know, there's loose yep. tables, booths, banquettes, and then you have a private dining area and you have your kitchen and you have your restrooms. So you'd kind of start to think about like, and maybe of outdoor dining too. So you think about how all of that stuff can be laid out and which spaces are related to each other. Like which spaces need to be close to each other and which spaces can be further away. Like um, you wouldn't necessarily want your entry to be really far away from like the parking lot, <laughs> or maybe you would, I don't know. Um, okay, you, yeah, you would, you yeah. have an explanation for it. Um, if you were to make it further away um, or you don't want the host to stand really far away from the front door. So it's kind of things like that. And, and sometimes they're very intuitive and sometimes they're, I guess, like a little bit more nuanced. Um, but so, so it starts with the bubble diagramming and then from there, the floor plan develops. So generally you'll do several iterations, come up with a floor plan and that will kind of be in the next presentation to the client and maybe you have started to um, think about more of the aesthetics and how that will apply. Like to use, maybe start picking out special moments um, or pulling images of things that you think um, would tie to this space more. So it's becoming like slightly more concrete visually, um, but functionally it's getting a little bit more fleshed out too. Okay. All right. So I assume you have software that you use to create those 3d models of of you know the floor plans and whatnot mm -hmm. and that's all stuff that you work on on a regular basis is that like your favorite part i i would imagine that would be my favorite part if i were an architect or an interior designer i would love to be sitting on the computer you know looking through those 3d models moving tables and walls and chairs and things yeah. around do you enjoy that part as well 
Yeah, yeah. So I would say starting, so conceptually, we do a lot on Pinterest and then uh, Adobe, the Adobe suite. So InDesign, pulling Pinterest imagery, kind of creating that mood board. And then when we move into schematic, that's where we get into like the architecture focused computer programs. So um, mainly everyone's using Revit right now. A lot of people are still using AutoCAD. Uh, AutoCAD is definitely a little bit better, I would say, for smaller projects because it, it doesn't require as much um, setup. And, and Revit kind of requires like a little bit of a heavy setup. And it doesn't matter what size project, you still have to do all the same steps. Um, but, but Revit's kind of the only way to do a really large project these days because um, you model everything in 3D and then it, it organizes it into your drawing sheets for you. Um, and then people are also using SketchUp and Rhino and uh, people do document in SketchUp, but I feel like SketchUp and Rhino are more for, um, I don't know how to explain, I guess, getting ideas out quickly, like modeling things really okay. fast and, and abstract thinking, like just trying to get ideas out and, and pulling it out of your head, it's easier to model it in SketchUp or Rhino than it is in Revit sometimes. It's a little bit less time consuming. So they're more of design tools, I would say. And then we do use a lot of Photoshop and um, InDesign again. InDesign is for all of the client presentations and then Photoshop is for renderings or you know editing mood board images just to make them look a little bit better. Um, kind of use Photoshop. Uh, all over the place, like just for a little bit of everything. Awesome. And okay. then the modeling, I guess. So that's kind of the next phase. Um, that's the third phase. That would be kind of like design development. So once you've gotten your floor plan laid out, um, I guess I won't skim over this. This is kind of the not glamorous part. Um, once you've gotten your floor plan laid out and you've uh, figured out you know, what all of the building codes you're adhering to are and that you've met all of those clearance requirements. Um, mm -hmm. Then, I mean, ideally, and this all kind of groups together too, depending on how fast the project's moving. But then ideally, you're, you're really um, modeling everything and getting into the details of it. And that's when you start to see the rendering. So they kind of happen like at the end of schematic design, beginning of design development, so you can see the space in 3D and you can like really play with different ideas and see how that affects um, the overall space. Awesome. Um, and, and that is really fun because, I mean, I enjoy modeling. I think it's, it's really fun. Um, and then also when you're rendering, um, and for people who might not know what rendering is, because I feel like that's an architectural term, it's really just like a 3D view with materials. Yep. And, you know, the longer... The rendering takes the nicer the rendering is the more realistic it looks so some of the renderings these days pretty much look like photographs um but yeah so that's really fun because you you do get to see kind of the ideas that were in your head and also on the mood boards and the presentations um kind of like manifest themselves in the space and it's kind of where everything's coming together right before like the heavy execution phases um start Okay. So, so once you've kind of come to an agreement on what everything is going to look like, does that mean you're picking individual pieces? Are you picking artwork to go on the wall? Are you picking chandeliers? Are you picking all of those things? Are you shopping on Wayfair for your client or, or who takes care of all of that? And yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So 
So once the, the general space is figured out, in schematic design, we do think about furniture too. That doesn't happen in design development. It happens in schematic design because a lot of the space planning is affected by how big the furniture is, how much space you need in between the furniture. Yeah. Um, like if it's a if it's a workspace, you need a certain amount of space between the desks so that people can all get to their workstations. Um, if it's a restaurant, obviously a waiter needs to be able to navigate through the tables. They can't be too close together. Um, so we do think about that. And then in design development, that that is where all of those products get chosen. So um, the presentations for the client would have floor plan renderings and then also layered in with the actual pieces. And so um, if we're doing furniture on the project, that's kind of where um, the furniture specifications and the furniture budget comes in. Um, so generally the client will have a furniture budget or hopefully they do. Sometimes they, they don't like to share that. But um, hopefully they have a furniture budget you can kind of go off of and then you can gauge which pieces will, will meet those requirements. Um, and you pull all of those. Uh, depending on the piece, it might have uh, graded in finishes, which means finishes that the manufacturer of that piece has already approved to go on it. So with lots of um, like curvy furniture, Sometimes they have specific fabrics that they want to they want to work with because if you send them a different fabric that's not flexible, it's not going to take the curves very well, and then it's not going to look good on the piece. Um, also, if you're worried about lead times, um, you want to spec a graded in fabric because it's already been approved, so you don't have to ship the fabric to the manufacturer for them to test and wait for them to approve it. Um, and then upholster the piece. They, they normally already have that upholstery like with them and it's already been approved. So it's a lot faster. And then if it's totally custom, then there's a lot of things that could happen. Um, oh, but man. generally I know. So this is, this is more of the hospitality route. This is like the hotels and possible restaurants. Um, but sometimes you design like a, a furniture piece that's completely custom. And so you want to sit in it. Like if it's for a restaurant and, you designed a chair, a custom chair. Obviously, you don't want to make like 40 of these chairs and then they're totally uncomfortable. So um, you'll have the specification written and uh, the fabricator is generally local. They'll bring the mock-up chair to the site and you and the client will sit in the chair, make tweaks as needed, and then they'll bring it back or you'll approve it with the tweaks, kind of depending on price point and um, how much time you have for the project. Obviously, something's opening right away. You want to have chairs, um, but you also want to get it perfect. So uh, that's kind of like the alternate route. And, and totally custom means you can almost specify like any finish on it. Um, so it kind of like opens up a lot of doors, but also it's very time consuming. So oh, yeah, yeah, you're going to have to pick have, your custom items. How, how much of this piece is driven by you the designer versus the restaurant owner or hotel owner because i feel like some people might be really particular and they want to pick their furniture pieces mm -hmm. but other people might just say ah you figure it all out we trust you yeah i think it i mean it very much i would say completely custom is more frequent on very large projects like hotels especially in guest rooms, because, you know, you generally have hundreds of guest rooms 
And sometimes custom is less expensive because when you have the quantity, that means that you are able to brew something for a lot less money. And mm-hmm. so if you do something custom, sometimes it ends up um, saving cost. And it also means you can do something really cool that, you know, no one's seen before. Um, so that's kind of where the advantage is. It's, it's a lot harder to do custom when it's a one-off. It's a lot more expensive. Yeah. Um, and it does take a lot of time. So I would say for the smaller projects, um, custom is like a little bit more limited, sometimes not at all. And sometimes just very minimally. Um, and you, you kind of have to pick those moments. And I feel like it always is, um, generally it's the designer that proposes it, but I would say the designer only proposes it when they can't find something equivalent out there. Um, yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. I would say so. And then there are things that are always custom like banquettes and built-in millwork um, that's that's more looped into the architectural scope like that the contractor would generally build, but sometimes can also be specified as furniture. Um, And so millwork is always going to be custom, you know, because someone's going to be fabricating that in a nearby shop and bringing it out to the site. And it's going to be custom dimensions to like fit within two walls. Uh Yeah, so that that kind of leads me to to my last question or, or set of questions before we kind of pan back and, and, you know, go a different route. And that's how do you, uh, hold on. I'm going to cut this out. Let me think about how I'm going <laughs> to ask this. Um, the only phase we haven't covered is construction documents and construction administration. Okay. So those are the execution phases. Okay. That's what I'm going to ask. Um, okay. So my last question for you is how involved are you on the actual construction side of things? The building, are you there on site or do you just kind of say, this is what we want and then let it go and it goes from there or what, what exactly happens in that phase? No, sorry. Hold on. I didn't like that. <laughs> That's okay. Did the doorbell <laughs> threw you off. <laughs> yeah. It, it threw me off a little bit. Um, Okay, so my last question for you, Amanda, is how involved are you on like the construction side? Like you just mentioned building custom benches, maybe. Um, is that stuff that you are involved in on site for, or do you just set it and let them take care of it and hopefully it works out? So again, it totally depends. Uh, I, I really like doing all the different phases of a project. And of course, it depends on how much time we have. Sometimes, you know, we have a really big team and the project is happening really fast. So we're all doing one little piece of it and it all adds up into a whole. But sometimes when there's enough time, it's only it's a very lean team. It's only a few people and they're kind of getting to do like a little bit of everything throughout the whole project. Um, And then also for, um, I guess, the construction administration, which is working in the field um, or, you know, going on site occasionally to make sure things are being um, built correctly. Uh, Sometimes clients want to pay for that. And sometimes they just want to stop after construction documents. And sometimes they stop before construction documents and they just stop at design. And then they hire um, an architect of record to document it and to um, do the, the CA, which is construction administration. And generally I would say that's more common if the designer is in a different location than the project. Um, like if it's a designer from New York and the project is in LA or something. Um, but, uh, I guess 
I really like doing the construction administration. I think it's it's really hard, um, but you get to work with the contractor a lot and it, it's just a different set of skills. Like I would say that's definitely a lot more coordination um, and it's a lot of client interaction because generally you're meeting up once a week to walk the site, see how things came in and mainly note what's wrong and figure out how to fix it or if it's an existing building, which interiors generally is kind of in an existing building, sometimes we get uh, the privilege of working in a completely new space, which can be really fun. Um, but generally it's existing and we, gen- we, we uncover a lot of things that we wouldn't necessarily have thought were there. Like sometimes the old drawings aren't accurate and right. we realize, oh, there's a plumbing pipe there that we can't move. And Um, we're going to have to work around it now. And so it's a lot of coming up with things very quickly um, and solving problems in a creative, but like thoughtful way. Um, And I also think it's really fun because every week you go, there's something new that's there. So um, I I like doing it. I'm really engaged in that. Um, I think it's really fun. I also think it's really important for people who are designing to uh, get the opportunity to do construction documents um, and also to do the construction administration work because I think it gives them kind of like a new level of respect for the people who are executing because I think that is one of the hardest parts. Um, I think design is generally quite hard, but uh, I'd say the more fun stuff happens at the beginning, but it's really the team at the end that makes a project really, really beautiful. Yeah, I I like how you worded that. You almost you sound like a project manager for like a construction team because I mean that that's really what you are. You're in charge of what things look like in the end. And so, you know, if you're going to design it, you want to see it actually happen. And so in order to make that happen, you you know, it sounds like you've got to be on site. You've got to be doing project oversight, project management. But that that almost feels like it could be an awkward relationship too, because you're, are you the ones directly hiring the subcontractors? I would imagine it's not you guys and it's actually the, the owners that are contracting the workers. Right. So there's kind of this weird relationship between you, the designer who's not in charge of the workers, but yet you kind of are right. Does that, does that ever come up? Does that feel weird? Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I hadn't really thought about it as being like, a manager for the contractor in some ways. Yes. I I like to think of us as allies who are specialized in our own thing. And, you know, the best is when both people respect each other and they, they work as a team to figure things out. Um, And I've had wonderful experiences with most contractors I've worked with. And it's been like that. Um, We really have to help each other out in order to get the project done on time and in budget and, and keep people happy but yeah, I mean, it, it's, it, it's interesting. So I would say, so I'll explain it a little bit. Um, so the client generally hires the architect or designer, and then they'll hire the contractor separately. And the contractor hires the subcontractors and they manage the subs. Um, and then there's also other consultants on projects too. There's generally um, mechanical, electrical, and plumbing engineer, so MEP, and then sometimes structural Uh, depending on if you're altering a space that requires a structural engineer um, or if you're building a new space, you definitely need a structural engineer. So there's definitely, and then 
there can be even more consultants if it's a hospitality project. There could be like a food and beverage consultant, a kitchen consultant, and so many others, a lighting consultant. So it kind of is um, a kit of parts and you put together the team you need for the project. Um, but yeah, I would say sometimes there's some tension uh, on the job site because everyone can be pointing fingers sometimes of like why something's late, did someone not respond or you know why something looks a certain way. But I would say generally it's actually quite smooth because um, so within a contractor's team, there's generally like a project manager kind of a senior person who who's just seen a lot. Um, and then there's always a superintendent. So the project manager is generally sourcing all of the materials, sending out RFIs, which are requests for information to the designer or the other consultants. Um, yeah. So that's generally like, you know, we didn't see this in your drawings. What do you want here? Or uh, we found this condition that we didn't know about. What should we do now? Um, or, you know, we heard that you changed this, like, what do you want it to be? Or clients said they wanted to change this, what do you want it to be? So it could be, you know, various things, but there's that project manager who's kind of collecting all of the information that needs to be asked, um, and also recording all of the answers that are coming back and, and sending that out to, um, the superintendent who's managing the subs. And the superintendent is pretty much on the project, like on site all the time. And um, they can really like make or break a project. And I love the, the supers that I've worked with. I think they've been great. Um, and they're just always so helpful. They've seen it all. And so sometimes hmm. they're like the most valuable source of information. If something's going wrong, they'll generally have a solution and sometimes it'll be an even better solution than the designer because they've seen something happen like that before. Um, so yeah, I would say like, it's not as uncomfortable as you'd think because the designer is pretty much never engaging with, um, the people doing the work. They're always engaging with someone who's directing them. And so because of that, the, um, the subs really, respect the superintendent because that's kind of yeah. like their manager and yep. so it's always coming from them and actually it's kind of a big no-no if you're walking to the site to to tell like a sub what to do because there's a liability thing like you shouldn't really be giving that direction it should always be going through the contractor yeah that makes um, sense but yeah sometimes there's little things like when i was on site for a project one of the electricians was like how high do you want these to be and so we we mocked it up in the space and we approved it there um, so it's stuff like that where sometimes it's good to see it and it's good that they bring those things up, but generally everything's handled in like a very formal process. Huh. Awesome. Well, that's a pretty thorough breakdown of what your job is and how the, how a project proceeds from start to finish. And it sounds like there's a lot of interesting things in there that you enjoy the, the design side, the conceptual site, you know, model side of things as well as the construction management and being on site uh and that that does require a lot of different skills it requires a lot of different people skills and computer skills and um you know a lot of good communication is required to be to be in any sort of service industry um you've got to know how to communicate and work with deadlines and budgets and and that's a lot of what we do here in america is is provide those sorts of services so 
this is a great example and it sounds like you really like your career and you know that's awesome to hear that you know you're the type of person i'm looking to find and looking to talk to so we can inspire other people out there to to follow their dreams and and get into the job that they would like to be in one day um and and speaking of that um you know where do you see yourself in 10 years do you see yourself continuing exactly where you are or do you want to move up is there a way to move up or do you want to move sideways laterally uh, how do you see your career progressing i don't know that so that's a really hard question i'm always really bad at the five ten year mark um ten year uh, mark question um so i don't really know how to answer that in a solid way but i do feel like in 10 years I'll still be doing something design related and it'll be bringing it to people um, in a thoughtful way. And so I think that could be like a variety of different things. Um, I'm just not really sure what that looks like yet. Yeah. But I think it will be design focused and I think it will be oriented around uh, people. Do, do you feel like you have enough experience to become a a solopreneur or a you know a, a solo consultant start your own little practice or is that difficult and not what you want to do oh no i would love to do that uh i think it's actually about the right time i think this is this is probably like the minimum <laughs> uh the minimum years of experience to be able to feel somewhat comfortable doing that and the idea of that is really, really exciting. And so I could definitely see that as an option as well. Um, yeah, no, I think that that would be great. I, I think also the, the scary thing about that is figuring out the right time. And also, um, you know, the more you know, the more you actually realize how many things could go wrong. Like the more you've seen it, the more you um, have experienced like all of the unknowns. And I think that in itself is scary because there's something beautiful about being naive and, and kind of um, only seeing the positives. But now I think I see a pretty good mixture of positives and negatives and weighing yeah. out those pros and cons um, definitely makes things a little bit more scary, but I also think I'm a little bit more responsible in my decision-making. So <laughs> yeah, no, definitely... that, I mean, those are things you can only gain through experience and years and years of doing it. Yeah, is gaining that definitely. eye for for danger, the eye for you know making quick decisions and making good decisions, uh, it, no matter what industry you're in. For sure, for sure. So let me yeah. ask you this: If there's somebody listening to this podcast that's you know in their mid 30s and they just they just loved what you said, they said, "Oh man, I love design. I would love to be." you know, doing modeling, I'd love to be working on project sites, doing design. How could that person, you know, get into what you're doing? Is it possible without a degree in design or architecture? Or how can they make that work? So I would say it's definitely a lot harder to get into commercial design without. I think you you definitely need a degree in architecture and interior design to do um, commercial design um, and generally from an accredited an accredited program. So um, there are a few schools in Texas um, that are accredited for interior design and also accredited for architecture too. Um, and if you don't go to an accredited program, but you go to a place that has architecture interior design, you can be an interior designer um, or an architect. It just takes a little bit longer if you if you want to be licensed. Like 
for architecture, you can only call yourself an architect if, if you're licensed, um, which means yep. you have to take a series of tests in order to pass and get your license. And the same goes for interior design, but it's a little bit more blurry um, because anyone can call themselves an interior designer, but uh, the license um, tends to, I guess, buy you like a little bit more credibility in the, in the commercial field. Um, so I would say like, if you really want to pursue that, definitely a, a degree focusing in those things is best. If you don't have a degree and you're curious, um, interior decorating is definitely in the same genre. Like I would say I still do interior decorating. It's just generally at the very end of a project. And that's generally, you know, furniture, finishes, no um, construction, uh, really. It's more of design guidance. And I think you can get into that. It's definitely different. And it's definitely more catering towards residential design. Uh, but it's an art to its own. And um, I think that would be a little bit easier. Uh, you don't need an accredited degree. Um, I think a degree still helps, but it could still be, it could be from like a two-year program. And yep. also there are so many residential designers who probably need the help. And so I actually do think like an internship um, or some kind of um, mentorship program could work really well there because I, I think a lot of people in town would probably take the help backtracking a little bit if um, you think you might be interested but you don't necessarily know um, the connections thing is is so beneficial not just for you later but also currently um, because you can engage in some of like the industry events like so many cities have um, architectural home tours through AIA which is the American Institute of Architects um, or like a local organization like RDA, which would be the Houston um, kind of, uh, I don't want to say equivalent because they operate, operate in the same space, but it's the, it's the Rice University um, organized program and they have home tours too. So that's really fun because you're going to get to see what, what um, being an architect would be like in the sense of you get to experience the product and, and see what that's like, but you also get to meet a lot of people and uh, often the architects are actually at the houses, so you can ask them questions too. Um, so I, I feel like that's really great. And sometimes, you know, based on the connections you make, you might be able to shadow someone for a day or two and, and see what it's like to actually kind of do that job. Well, Amanda, your your knowledge and experience definitely shows, and I appreciate you taking the time to share all of this with us. And, uh, you know, it, it really opened up my mind to what your career looks like and a lot of these things I had no idea about. And so I learned a lot from this today. And, uh, you know, I, I personally enjoy the idea of design and architecture. I find it very fascinating. And so um, I really enjoyed talking with you today, and I'm sure our listeners also enjoyed this, and, and hopefully you inspired somebody out there to go follow their dreams and become an architect. And if that person is out there, um, they're, sorry, a designer or, well, or an architect, either way, they could reach out to you. Um, and if they do want to reach out to you, how would they be able to contact you? Yeah, they can reach out to me uh, on my website. It's amanda-heideman.com. And my emails there, as well as some of the recent projects that I've worked on. Okay, perfect. Uh, thank you again for sharing all of this with us. And I, I hope that you have continued success with your career. Thanks so much, Michael. Appreciate you having me.